I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ina Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. As per standard protocol, we have a wide-ranging array of topics for you. So Ben is going to kick us off talking about a topic that he just published on this week at Newsweek. So very excited. So he's talking about the weaponization of the FBI and the DOJ, a familiar topic, but there are some new revelations as to the depths of the depravity. We're going to toss it over to Emily, who will talk about Joe Manchin's climate deal with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. Then we'll go over to Inez, who's going to talk about how Glenn Youngkin is not delivering thus far on a lot of what we thought he would deliver on by now, at least. And then I will take us home by talking about Nancy Pelosi's much ballyhooed trip to Taipei, Taiwan. But Ben, let's toss it over to you to get us started. Yeah, to some extent, the FBI and DOJ allegations of politicization, corruption, weaponization is well-trod territory. But I do sense that something may have changed in recent weeks based on disclosures put out within days of each other from Senator Charles Grassley and then on the House side, Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, alleging a whole new range of corruption at FBI slash DOJ and politicization from a series of whistleblowers that apparently have been visiting their offices uh, in recent months. So let's start with the Charles Grassley tranche of revelations. Essentially, what he says is that whistleblowers have indicated to him that there's been a concerted effort, uh, if not actually conspiring between parties, at the very least with a wink and a nod, FBI officials and senior Democrats in Congress who work to, on the one side, undermine an investigation into Hunter Biden's misdeeds, and by extension, of course, those of his father in the run-up to the 2020 election. And then on the other hand, undermine, neutralize, and seek to discredit those who were pursuing this information, particularly on the Senate side and specifically Senators Grassley and Ron Johnson, uh, from undertaking their investigations into Hunter Biden. And of course, there's a long history of Senators Johnson and Grassley pursuing FBI and DOJ politicization and weaponization going back to Russiagate, uh, which matters in this context. So a couple of things worth noting from these Grassley revelations. First thing is that Grassley points to an FBI intelligence analyst by the name of Brian Auden. This was a man who actually led the probe into the Steele dossier and was unable to corroborate any part of it yet allowed the FBI and other officials to continue running with allegations put forth in that dossier uh, to allow Russiagate to mushroom. Uh, basically, Auden was involved, it appears, in working, in working up an assessment used by FBI headquarters, and this is quoting from the Grassley letter, to improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation and cause investigative activity to cease. And again, this is in 2020, in the months leading up to the 2020 presidential election. Now, th the revelations also include this point, that FBI headquarters teams, investigators placed their findings with respect to this reporting on purportedly on derogatory, disinform uh, derogatory information that was labeled disinformation. They put it in a restricted access subfile reviewable only by the particular agents responsible for uncovering the specific information. They also apparently, one of the officials involved, subsequently attempted to improperly mark the matter in FBI systems so that it couldn't be opened in the future, this investigation into derogatory Hunter Biden information. So here's what Grassley said. He said, if these allegations are true, quote, 
then the FBI and DOJ are institutionally corrupted to their very core to the point in which the United States Congress and the American people will have no confidence in the equal application of the law. And he goes on to say, based on the allegations I've received from numerous whistleblowers, you have systemic and existential problems within your agencies. I think those qualify as fighting words from a senior, you know, relatively establishment, but conservative and powerful member of the Senate to raise those types of allegations and state it so bluntly. And it echoes what we've been arguing here, of course, for months. Then on the Rep Jordan side, whistleblowers have come to him indicating that essentially, and I wrote about this for Newsweek, as Josh alluded to, that there is threat inflation going on with the FBI, where agents are being rewarded for pursuing and classifying as cases that are not domestic violent extremism cases as domestic violent extremism cases. And why does this matter so significantly beyond, of course, the chilling effect of pursuing Americans and, of course, the preeminent DVE, domestic violent extremist threat that the administration has said comes from, of course, anti-government, anti-authority and or bigoted domestic violent extremists, so-called, i.e. conservatives based upon uh, how the regime uh, defines these terms. This matters because the FBI and others have pointed to this huge shift in resources towards domestic violent extremism and a national strategy for countering domestic terrorism based on this swelling caseload. So of course, if you say that there's this huge threat and then you go about cooking the books to make it seem as if the threat's even bigger than it is, that's gonna be used to justify that narrative used of course to pursue wrong thinkers. And this follows on the heels of Jim Jordan also finding that whistleblowers have said that the FBI put these threat tags on parents Uh, critical of school boards, as well as that there's a purge of conservatives within the FBI's ranks. So you you put all this together, and what it points to is senior officials in Congress very bluntly putting forth uh, these remarkable revelations. And that leads me to a couple questions. You know, one is, what do you make of the fact these allegations are coming out now? To the extent that you say that this is midterm election year uh, grandstanding, or at the very minimum, shining a light on these issues, as foreshadowing what might happen in a next Congress, does it mean that these are actually politically viable matters that do matter to tens of millions of Americans, something that I think they should, but we haven't necessarily seen Republicans to date make that case? And then the last question is, do you think there's going to be something like a defund the FBI or DOJ movement going forward? Is that something that the next wave of populist conservatives are going to put forward? So I leave those few questions open. Uh, Love to hear your comments on these revelations. Well, I think it's difficult to make the public understand the level of threat, but I think the the the, the threat level here, because I think it's kind of, it seems uh, sort of abstract, right? Because the FBI is, you know, a big building in Washington, D.C. Well, not actually downtown anymore because they've moved the headquarters, uh, but it, it just seems like this big, powerful agency and it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with their everyday lives. But the more uh, the FBI makes that sort of easier, makes it more tangible uh, by looking into really specific personal threats on local levels that are just, you know, conservatives that are expressing themselves like the parent thing. That's how you make this uh, sort of, you turn this into a political populist talking point um, that said everything that Ben just talked about is fascinating in light of the Schedule 7 uh, reform that has been proposed in the, by the sort of Trump camp, right? Axios had this huge report, I think we even talked about it last week, um, that Republicans are planning to make it easier for them to gut careers in the administrative state in Washington, D.C. when they come back. Now, the media has treated this in the last week as extreme um, and radical, but radical in kind of an extreme way. I think last week we talked about it and I was like, well, it is radical because 
in Washington, getting rid of career bureaucrats is a radical thing to do. Sadly, it should just be a norm, but in fact, it's radical. And that's what the FBI needs. Um, that's what the intelligence community means needs because you see how deeply rooted all of this stuff is. I mean, it, the, it goes so deep into the institutions that uh, even a one or two term president is going to have a hard time trying to turn the Titanic around. Um, and I think that's sort of what you saw starting to happen in the Trump administration. They themselves were disappointed. They didn't have a clear plan as to how they can turn the Titanic around. The Schedule 7 reform is one way to do it. But even that, I mean, this is a big, big undertaking because as Ben just laid out, it's shockingly deeply embedded and it's only getting worse as our political divisions get worse. Yeah, um, I guess I'll just follow up here. Um, the, I, as Emily alluded to, I, I highlighted that Axios report last week. It's not just the FBI, it's every government agency. Um, and there is no way to clean house without the ability to fire career people. Um, that has to be a very high priority. There is no way to get any other conservative administration policies through, even assuming that we win elections and are allowed to win elections, right? Um, there is very little that a conservative administration can do as, as um, I'm gonna pick up on Emily's metaphor here, to turn the Titanic. Right now they have the rudder of a dinghy to try to turn the Titanic. It's incredibly difficult to actually clean house in these kinds of cases because you can't fire people. Uh, and that just absolutely has to change. It has to be priority number one for any Republican administration, not you know tax cuts or whatever else. Because a lot of this stuff has to go through Congress. There are some things like Schedule F reforms that Trump put, put forward um, that can change things around the edges executively. But really fundamentally, this is 100 years of building protections that came from Congress that have to be undone. So. Um, Again, I think that should be priority number one. And two, on, on the subject itself, if, if these whistleblower allegations are true, um, that both not only the rank and file uh, agents, but all their supervisors, this really sounds like it's you know from the bottom to the top of the FBI. I'd say we need a lot more whistleblowers on this and actually not continuing to expose this. I think this is the duty of any neutral agency at this, any, any neutral agent at this point is to expose this to the American people, not just in the FBI, but as I said, in all of these agencies, this, the entire administrative state, it has a political perspective um, and it just, it fundamentally needs to be dealt with. It's an incredibly powerful force in our politics and is completely unchecked by any kind of democratic accountability. And that just fundamentally has to change. Uh, yeah, but even focusing specifically on kind of the intelligence and security wings of the broader deep state here, but I'm focusing on the CIA, the FBI, you know, I think it was very common, perhaps even ubiquitous for conservatives of a certain age and generation to kind of come of age, you know, really like revering these institutions, thinking that the CIA was like profoundly badass because it's like intelligence. I mean, the CIA is working with the military with the Hellfire missiles where, you know, we're taking down like Anwar Awlaki and like the, you know, goat herding cave, or whatever, deep in the bowels of Yemen or during the Obama. Look, uh, the, the point that I want to make here in our limited remaining time in, in this segment is I think knowing what time it is from a domestic perspective necessarily requires that you see even the CIA, the FBI for what they are. So not going to name names, but, you know, there is uh, one prominent kind of, uh, you know, primetime Fox News host, and, you know, his name is not Tucker Carlson because Tucker does know what time it is, who wears, I think, I could be wrong, I think he wears like a CIA pin, the gentleman that I'm not going to name, like on his jacket, like every single night on air. I mean, you could not like paint not knowing what time it is 
worse than that. So anyway, um, I, I just think that it is incumbent upon us not just, just to talk about the deep state in general, which is a huge problem. And as Vlad, that Axios thing that we did on, the, on last week's podcast, but you know, the CIA, the FBI, these particular problems really are increasingly glaring. And I, I hope that Ben's call for kind of a next Republican administration to really kind of clean house and really basically abolish the FBI, the CIA, NSA, and just build anew. I hope that we kind of take that call to action. But we're at time on this segment. So let's toss it over to Emily to talk about Joe Manchin. Just as the lights in my office went out. <laughs> it's motion censored. So one second. Okay, there we go. <laughs> that was perhaps the worst possible timing. Um, Anyway, so Democrats are touting a new deal in the middle of a midterm cycle, actually coming up on the fall uh, before elections that show, you know, their polling shows they're probably in a pretty bad spot. Um, and they could be heading into a lame duck Biden term uh, if things turn out the way that they look like they're going to turn out in the House and the Senate. We don't know exactly how things will shake out in terms of Republican gains in both of those uh, houses of the legislature, but we do know that Democrats are really worried about having some significant losses uh, or losing their majority in one or both. Uh, likely the House, maybe the House and the Senate. Either way, losing the House is quite a big deal for them, and so they've cooked up a plan, uh, a bill, basically, that we now have from Senator Manchin. He agreed to it with Chuck Schumer they negotiated it behind closed doors and rolled it out last week. I think it was via a press release. That's how everybody sort of found out about it, including Kirsten Sinema um, of Arizona, who's considered to be one of the two uh, sort of centrists that needs to be convinced to vote for legislation like this. It's called, uh, it, it, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is sort of hilarious because Democrats are really desperate right now, um, not just to avoid the idea that they're contributing to inflation, but to also be seen as proactively addressing inflation. And the bill is a boondoggle for, uh, I'm actually using the words of the uh, Republicans on the House Wayne's Ways and Means Committee, Committee for politically connected energy firms. That's true. Um, everybody sort of remembers Solyndra. This is basically giving Democrats a liability again, um, and it's it would increase the manufacturing of solar panels in China, which is another obviously huge problem um, that this is only going to make worse. And it will raise taxes on just about everybody. And one thing that you know the media helps Democrats with during these types of negotiations is in using their numbers that are favorable to them, the way they choose to spin a bill. There are a million different uh, special interest groups and nonprofits who are favorable to both sides, who can always find a way to crunch the numbers um, in, in a sense that actually is spin, basically serves as spin for their intended political outcome. Um, so it's important to look at the bipartisan analyses and the, not even bipartisan, but the nonpartisan analyses. So, you know, th this is pretty serious. This is a huge amount of spending. Um, it's a huge amount of spending as we have headed into a recession, and it's a tax hike um, on pretty much everyone. It empowers the IRS to do more auditing um, and auditing across the board in ways that will hit middle-class Americans in ways that will hit small businesses. It increases uh, reliance on China. Um, solar panels are notorious for involving forced labor uh, in China, and this, you know, is is more money to manufacture solar panels in China. So there's just 
a lot of bad in this bill. And because Democrats are so desperate to show that they are doing something to voters to, to be able to be out on the stump and tell voters that they are doing something um, about climate or they are doing something about inflation reduction. They can say, oh, we are working on a bipartisan basis to reduce inflation via the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't know how this shakes out. We don't know if Kirsten Cinema is on board. Um, there's a lot of particulars in this bill. Lobbyists are gonna descend on their offices. Um, so I'll toss it open to the group with that. What are Democrats thinking? <laughs> so look, I mean, I can speculate obviously as to what Democrats are thinking. I don't pretend to be inside the mind of a Democrat here, but uh, look, they're clearly desperate. I, I mean, like uh, uh, the past couple of weeks, I mean, I guess we're gonna give a modicum of credit where credit is due. They have been able to at least claim some victories. I'm thinking mostly of kind of the assassination of Zawahari or Zawahiri, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, um, You know, who by the way, happened to be apparently hiding out you know, in, in the personal residence of a uh, Haqqani network uh, head honcho who the New York Times published, gave an op-ed to. So the New York a New York Times contributor <laughs> apparently happened to be harboring Zawa here. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to that in closing thoughts. But, you know, so you had that, you had this domestic, you know, that thing that, that they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it seems to be just like crass political calculus to try to show, quote unquote, something. It's the old argument that doing something is better than doing nothing. You know, I, I query what actually changed to make Joe Manchin change his mind here. This does not look particularly different from the Build Back Better that he rejected for months and months and months. I mean, I suppose it is smaller. The, you know, the branding of the Inflation Reduction Act, Democrats happen to be very good at this. Democrats are very good at kind of naming these large pieces of legislation in kind of a, a, a very positive sounding way that will presumably pull well the American voters. Republicans, I tend, I, I think, tend to not be as good. So they probably could learn something as, as far as just pure cynicism is concerned, as far as kind of naming these things. Because look, I mean, the very basic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So you want to you want to tamp down inflation, you need to either cut the money supply or increase production of goods. So by definition, you know, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billion dollars of new spending, that's more money. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't take like an econ PhD, someone who specializes in monetary theory, Milton Freeman, all that to kind of tell you that this is this is deeply dishonest, disingenuous branding. The only other thing I'll note here, it seems to me that Joe Manchin got a lot of West Virginia specific kickbacks to try to entice his vote here. Now, it happens to be that a lot of those things are kind of related to uh, coal and natural gas and fossil fuels, which we would should support on, on the policy merits. But I have to say that the optics of it are pretty bad. It's extremely swampy optics. You know, I, it, it looks a lot like the kind of legislating, the kind of, you know, uh, log rolling, you might say, that really is what has fired up generations of more populist revolt against the D.C. establishment. So the optics of this are not good. So I'll be really brief. Um, Emily was asking kind of what were Democrats thinking? And uh, my simple response is that they think voters are idiots. Um, and consequently, I think voters ought to revolt uh, and have contempt for their uh, assumed betters here. Uh, like on this and so many other issues, the simplistic way that I look at bills is look at whatever the title of the bill is, and it probably means the opposite of the title. And this is a perfect representation of it as has been laid out in terms of so-called inflation reduction. Just because you slap a label inflation reduction on something does not make it so, and clearly not when the underlying uh, portions of this bill are, of course, not going to drive down prices. They're not going to enable the production of more goods and services and drive down their prices. Uh, so it's a joke of a bill. But I think what it one way, one way that we might look at it is 
besides, you know, letting a thousand cylinders bloom here, and maybe related to that, is that this is a vote buying scheme, and it's about trying to reward uh, their constituents and their activists before uh, they are out of the majority in one or both houses of Congress. So I think that might be one way to look at it. Forget about what it means for the midterm elections. It's rewarding their friends one more time before they're potentially out of power. Um, I would just add to that that uh, I think Republicans will have to be quite careful in how they talk about this. Um, I think you know the dynamics of this fight are going to shape up something that looks a lot like the Tea Party era rather than the era that we're in. Um, and tax and spend, as much as we hate to to admit it, tax and spend was a more popular aspect, is the more popular aspect of the Democratic Party platform, right? Um, as opposed to their cultural views. Their cultural views are deeply unpopular. Um, and now we do have mass inflation. People, I do think, I agree with you, Ben, I don't think, uh, you know, people are stupid. The Democrats are pretending that people are stupid and that pouring billions more into the economy is not going to help inflation. Um, but I, I think we would be silly not to recognize that actually the economic, like write people a check part of the Democratic Party platform is more popular than the rest of their platform. And if they can switch the election to being about how they spent more money and they will frame it, of course, as helping people, even though we know that that's not it. Um, I, I think that they are going to be in better shape in the midterm uh, than if they focus on some of the other stuff that they have been focusing on lately, whether that's January 6th or, or um, the, the sort of far left cultural positions that increasingly represent the Democratic Party. The, my last thought on that, uh, I think it's a good point. I think the fact that this bill is getting so heavily uh, framed as a climate bill is not helpful to Democrats on the campaign trail because the tax and spend stuff Republicans should understand absolutely yeah. is, is politically helpful and expedient. But um, if this gets framed as a climate bill and a recession, they're in tough shape. Uh, let me make totally one more point, actually. But yeah, sorry, let me just make one more point actually before we go to Inez here. So Henry Olson actually, I thought, had a really good column on this. His take was basically, because Kirsten Sinema is publicly like, he's, she's uncommitted yet, she's not sure what she's going to do. And, you know, Democrats need all 50 votes, plus Kamala's a tie-breaking vote, of course. So what Henry wrote in his op-ed was like, Joe Manchin clearly got like this very swampy carve-out concession. You know, Kirsten Sinema should should do something. And to be clear, I, ho I hope Kirsten Sinema loses her next election, obviously. I hope that we get a Republican in that seat. But if her kind of swampy, log-rolling, porky kind of request involves like more border security, which is a pretty pressing state for the state of Arizona, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm going to oppose that. So, you know, maybe that's too Pollyannish and too optimistic, but I guess we'll see. But um, I'll stop on that note. Uh, let's toss it over to you in this. Um, so speaking of the Republican Party just letting us down uh, time and time again, um, I, Glenn Youngkin's election was incredibly important, I think not because of Youngkin himself, but because of the roadmap that it showed for the Republican Party that even a moderate Republican can get elected and even in a blue state by becoming uh, doubling down and becoming the party of parents. We've seen a sea change uh, on, on the issue of education and issues surrounding education. We're talking 20, 30 point swing. Democrats have owned that issue, education, for, for decades. And for the first time, we're actually seeing voters trust Republicans more than Democrats on the issue of education. But that sea change will not last um, unless 
the Republican Party actually follows up with real policies that get rid of uh, some of the, the woke ideology in schools, whether that's critical race theory or SEL or gender ideology, and actually focus on that problem. And a huge part of focusing on that problem is going to be getting leverage through school choice to parents, especially middle class parents. Um, and so that that's the, the, the agenda and the focus that really elected Glenn Youngkin in a blue state. Unfortunately, he's not really following through on that agenda nearly as well as a lot of parents had hoped he would. Um, and and uh, my, my colleague over at IWF, Ginny Gentles, has a fantastic piece over at Chalkboard Review, um, where she points out that uh, Youngkin has failed. He basically let the, uh, the, the uh, bureaucrats overrun his policy. Uh, he has not revoked or revised the state's model transgender policies, which is something that school districts use. Right, so we still have the same gender ideology problems in Virginia schools that we had before Yunkin, and he is not doing even the administrative work that he needs to do to try to reverse that policy. Um, so instead, he signed on to uh, this this letter from 15 governors expressing concern about the Title IX regulations, which I've talked about before, which which redefine sex to include gender identity among other issues. But as much as I completely agree with that letter that is, is directed at the Biden administration, it almost reads to me in this situation as kind of a second best, like, oh, this isn't my fault. This is actually Title IX compliance um, instead of actually standing up and doing what he was elected to do. Uh, and, and I just I think this is worth pointing out, not only because I believe the future of the Republican Party very much hinges on how they deliver for parents, um, in, in the next, if, if parents do hand them more elections, if they don't follow that up with real substantive policy change, um, I, I think that a lot of those, those whole, that whole, and we like this phrase for me, but the, the, the whole um, culture war is the big tent theory can very quickly fall apart if the Republican Party doesn't actually follow through on important policies like this. Um, and, and just a final note on this whole episode, we immediately saw after that win, like, every sort of establishment-y type commentator Republican put Youngkin on the list, the short list for a presidential candidate, right? Um, this is just a really good reminder that actually to the extent the establishment of the GOP sometimes embraces now these issues in order to get elected, it's still going to be an uphill slog to get them to actually prioritize them when in office. Um, and, and with that, I'll throw it out to the, the, the other three here. All right. Well, I, I guess in uh, the room, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to jump in here. So I, I guess for me, it is just a cautionary tale. I guess that's kind of the theme that I want to emphasize here. So look, when Glenn Youngkin was running, I mean, certainly when he declared his candidacy, there were a, a lot of you know potential warning signs of this would not necessarily be kind of like a populist America first MAGA, whatever you want to call it sort of candidacy. I and mean, this is a guy who was very high ranking at the Carlisle Group. There were all sorts of questions about his ties to China. I think, you know, there, there are these public images of his, of him kind of wearing like the fleece of ass, kind of the classic like hedge fund Wall Street kind of look. So in a lot of ways, he, you know, he did kind of look like a Mitt Romney type figure, at least during his candidacy. As it got closer to Election Day, you know, think back to October going into early November 2021, you know, when he really kind of seized upon critical race theory and what, what was happening in the schools as kind of like a, a, a pressing issue. That's when he really started to embrace the culture war. And that's really when he, you know, that's when he cruised to victory. I mean, I wrote a column at the time basically saying like, this is like the model, you embrace the culture war, you dive right in. This is like the formula, I think Governor DeSantis, when he took on Disney, was doing something very similar to that and so forth. But, 
you know, I, again, I, I think this is Virginia. This is not exactly a deep red state. Um, and Florida, where I live, is not exactly traditionally a deep red state either. It is traditionally a purple state, but not, you know, I'm not to shill for my governor too much, but not everyone can be Ron DeSantis. Not everyone can kind of come into like a purple, traditionally purple, light red state of the best and be like a dynamic, transformative conservative. Sometimes when, you know, it looks like a squish and it talks like a squish and it dresses like a squish, maybe it might actually just be a squish, to be honest with you. So um, I, I guess that's what my takeaway from this. I, to, to be clear, I, I, I want to give Glenn Youngkin a little more time. I mean, let's not like write like his, you know, let's not like put the tombstone up there and like write the postmortem or anything quite yet. Uh, but the, the fact that he is off to a less impressive start than I think many thought that he would be, especially after those first few days. Like, you know, his first couple of days in office, if I recall, Inez, like, were like really dynamic. He was putting out these like awesome executive orders. And like a lot of my group chats were like, whoa, this is like a base kind of guy. He's going to give DeSantis a run for his money. But anyway, I, I, I'm just not terribly shocked to come this return to the median based on those early tea leaves. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think it's uh, it's really helpful to have experts like Inez and Ginny who follow these issues really closely weighing in. Um, it'll be interesting to see if if Youngkin listens basically to um, a lot of the voices that led the charge uh, for on behalf of parents that was a wave that swept him into office. So it'll it'll be interesting to see if he listens to to those voices or if he's now more concerned about um, the political climate, meaning he needs to be. More more centrist uh, on culture issues. I think that would be a very incorrect reading of the tea leaves, so to speak, uh, to borrow a phrase from Josh. But it does remind me of something Ben Dominich wrote in his Transom newsletter. And I think for uh, Spectator just today, as we're taping this Wednesday in reaction to the primaries that happened on Tuesday evening, um, there's a question of whether the Republican Party's, I guess, wake up call uh, from the Trump era is going to translate down the road to more than talking points. And Ben was saying, you know, there's there's some signs based on who's been nominated, certainly not like a Blake Masters, uh, but other candidates that that's not necessarily happening, um, that, you know, some of these people might talk in ways that it feels a little bit post-Trump, but they're basically pre-2016 Republicans. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if uh, that turns out to be true of, of Glenn Youngkin for all of the reasons we listed before. And the fact that, like, honestly, he had bad consultants and then he had good consultants, from what I've heard, who changed his tune um, and who helped him sort of understand. Uh, but, I, you know, it's just Republicans are going to Republican. They've been doing this uh, on life issues for years. They talk a great game, a great pro-life game on the campaign trail, especially in primaries, to win pro-life voters, to get people to the polls, and then do pretty much nothing um, when they get into office and change the way they talk about the issue when they get into office. Um, so, you know, the, all of that is to say there's a lot of excitement in this moment, and certainly the parents' movement has been, I think, an important pillar in the conservative populist movement more broadly. Um, but, you know, people really need to hold Republicans accountable. And, you know, it's, I think it's great that Inez and Ginny are doing that and that we're having this conversation here. Um, but I think we all need to be vigilant to, to hold Republicans accountable, whether they're Glenn Youngkin or Blake Masters or whoever, when they get in office, um, because this is not the easy road for them. This is not the natural road for them. They're not natural culture warriors if they come from the Carlisle group and they have, you know, the, I think Yenkin like sent out a nice little note about BLM at one point when he was at Carlisle group. So 
it's not their natural, uh, their instinct. So it's, it's important to be vigilant. Yeah, I, I was skeptical from the start personally on Youngkin, but still viewed it as, you know, a, a positive, the way in which he ran and the issues that he ran on. And I think it also revealed a signal from the noise about where the intensity and the passion and the concern was on behalf of voters, even in a purple state, if not a blue state. I, th I frankly would call Virginia a blue state uh, at this point. Um, but this is a story as old as probably the Republican Party itself of you, know, you campaign one way and then you govern another way. Uh, I'm sure that there were many people who felt betrayed after uh, 1994 when Republicans uh, swept into Congress and you had the Contract for America. How many of the people that were stalwarts at the time the contract was put forth and signatories to it ended up governing the same? Same thing, of course, with the Tea Party wave as well. I think it's a point well taken that, uh, that Ben Dominich's point echoed by Emily that we don't know which direction the party is going to go and whether the party is going to merely rhetorically ape the populist strand uh, and lean into just at a surface superficial level what Donald Trump tapped into or whether the party actually will change. And it's probably going to vary on a congressman to congressman or presidential candidate to presidential candidate basis. Uh, but I do think what one thing that this underscores or a couple questions that we ought to consider are, did Youngkin change from what he ran on to who he is now, or did the constituents change, or did he feel he needed to lean into one constituency to win, but they weren't really representative of the electorate at large? Obviously, again, fully accepting the fact, you know, he has a limited amount of issues he's going to focus his energies on, but this is obviously a pretty significant one. And then the other thing is, I think we have to look at individual uh, officers in these states and pick and choose the issues where we really press them. Um, and they, I always look at a, a, a candidate like this or a politician like this rather, you know, obviously the most uh, successful and, you know, to be revered politicians are the ones who take an issue that may not look popular and they make the case and they actually shift opinion and persuade people on them. But I view most politicians as reflective of how they see their constituents. So. That again points to the question is, is he where the constituents are or is this where he really is? But we ought to look at these sorts of candidates and pick and choose our issues and hold their feet to the fire on particular issues that we've deemed to be of the utmost importance because chances are they're gonna break our hearts on the majority of the issues. Okay, so let's go ahead and transition to our final segment here. So we're recording this on Wednesday, yesterday morning, US time late at night over in China and Taiwan. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's plane touchdown in Taipei. She has met with um, the Prime Minister. I believe that's a, that's that's the title, Prime Minister of Taiwan. This happened despite increasingly belligerent militant threats from from China or from you know state-owned Chinese Communist Party-owned uh, and managed media affiliates who basically warned that if her plane was to touch down, then you know the, it was at risk of being shot down. I mean, like it, it really did get to that height. Shockingly, few people were talking about this, honestly. Tucker was talking about it, but there weren't a whole lot of people talking about that. Like, you know, our arch geopolitical foe was literally talking about in fairly naked terms, shooting down the plane of the Speaker of the House. And the Biden administration, amazingly, did did not have formal comment on this. They basically just said, oh, it's a coordinate branch of government. It's Article 1. We're Article 2. She can do what we want. First of all, there's a lot of points to make here. Um, first of all, it, it, to me, it is insane. It is truly insane that at a time like this, when U.S.-China tensions are about as high as they've been 
two years after the Wuhan virus, you know, escapes onto the world. You know, a lot of Americans are talking about reshoring supply chains, things of that nature. China's increasingly hegemonic in the East and South China Sea. It is utterly insane to me that Nancy Pelosi did not coordinate any of this with the White House beforehand. Uh, to be clear, she's not just in Taiwan on this trip. She's at least in Malaysia, Singapore, and, and Japan. So anyway, so after they issued this threat, the, the debate was, you know, should she land? Should she go ahead and do it? We published an op-ed from uh, Newsweek, that is, from Newt Gingrich, uh, the former Speaker of the House, who was the last high-ranking U.S. official to do this. So in 1997, uh, then-Speaker Gingrich landed in Taiwan. He went ahead and did that. He encouraged Nancy Pelosi to do so. I guess my, my quick take on this is that, again, first of all, it was insane for her not to coordinate any of these travel plans in this very sensitive region of the world with the White House, because the U.S. really should be speaking in one voice, period, at, at a time like this, especially with the same political party, for goodness sake. But even if there were different political parties, you really have to be kind of projecting a similar message at, at a time like this, I think. Second of all, she probably, for prudential reasons, should not have gone there at this particular time. Again, it's been 25 years and, and, and I'm obviously a supporter of Taiwan. In fact, my first year of law school summer when I was a law clerk for Senator Mike Lee and his Senate Judiciary staff, I have a very fond memory of Senator Lee and our, you know, the entire staff having a very nice dinner at the Taiwanese uh, consulate. It's not a formal embassy, of course, of the, the consulate there. So I, I, I certainly am pro-Taiwan. I, I think it was probably prudentially, it would have been prudentially wise to avoid that. But, and here's the key but here, my, my take is that once it leaked, once it leaked that she had intended to go there, and it's not exactly clear to me what the provenance of this leak was, whether it was Pelosi's staff, whether it was some of the Taiwanese, it's just not obvious to me at this point. Once it leaks, I, I really think that you have no choice whatsoever, that you you absolutely had to follow through no matter what kind of the blustering or the, or the threat was. If for no other reason than, you know, at that point, kind of, you know, backing away. I mean, you you literally might as well like let the People's Liberation Army march into Taipei tomorrow. I mean, the Japanese, the South Koreans, Filipinos, all of our Indians, all of our allies in the region would just be so catastrophically let down at that particular point. But I do I do think that it was that, that it was imprudent for her to consider going there at this particular time in the first place. There's also lots of questions that I think are extremely fair questions raised about Nancy Pelosi's ties to the semiconductor industry. She's obviously a San Francisco. You know, uh, she's a she's a doyen. She's a kind of a, a, a social figure there in the industry. She knows all the Silicon Valley types. So, you know, those are interesting questions that might get raised as well. But, you know, qualified praise, certainly, I think, for Nancy Pelosi, which is not something that I'm particularly accustomed to saying, for following through despite these blustering threats after it was leaked, even though I disagreed with her decision to put that on the agenda at this particular time in the first place. Um, so let's kind of get everyone's thoughts on that. I'd be curious where you where you agree, disagree. Ben, you're obviously um, constantly focusing on the China issue, which is which is a good thing to be clear. So I'd be curious for your thoughts in particular, I guess. Yeah, I did find uh, Newt's piece in Newsweek to be insightful, especially the contrast. He was going at a time of severely heightened tensions, but also at a time where American strength vis-a-vis uh, -vis China was substantially greater. And also, as he alluded to in his piece, he noted that he also visited China on that trip um, and essentially used the Taiwan uh, threat of a Taiwan trip as leverage to force the Chinese to let him speak in China and then also speak in Taiwan as well. But anyway, setting that aside, and it's a worthwhile read. Th th there, are a few, there are a few things about this, a few questions about this that haven't really been compellingly answered that I do think are worth asking. So the first one is, did Pelosi, are we really to believe that Nancy Pelosi did not consult with the Biden administration or was this intentional or unintentional and essentially non-strategic ambiguity here when you have the Speaker of the House 
apparently taking a different posture from the president. And the president, by the way, it's claiming that the military didn't want her to go, even though we haven't seen any real corroborating evidence of that. But the second question is, why now? Uh, that is a question that I don't think has really been looked into. We do know that she has his Communist Party Congress coming up where uh, he seeks another term and there continues to be legacy polishing aimed at on his part. So, you know, would a headache in Taiwan or potential military action in Taiwan redound to his benefit or not? Does he benefit from the fact that he claims that this is a provocation? And I don't think, by the way, that we should buy into the Chinese propaganda on that, setting aside whether or not now and the purpose of this move is the prudential decision. But that brings us to what was the purpose of all of this? And Nancy Pelosi's staff put out a very boilerplate statement of, you know, this is to show solidarity with the Taiwanese, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we believe in a free and open Indo-Pacific Okay, but what was the real reason? And she did allude to uh, the semiconductor issue. And it does raise the question of, you know, this is the greatest insider trading family in the history of the Congress. You know, to what extent do her family's investments uh, relate to this, especially just after the CHIPS Act was passed? So, you know, when we look at the purpose, there's obviously the, the graft and corruption angle. Uh, is this legacy polishing for Pelosi? You know, to her credit, to some extent, she has been uh, usually fairly outspoken on, at a minimum, Chinese human rights violations going back several decades. I do wonder if there's something of a good cop, bad cop dynamic here between Pelosi's posture on the one hand and then the senior senator also from the Bay Area, Dianne Feinstein, who, as I've written about at length, has been the ultimate appeaser, if not worse, when it comes to communist China. Is this to try to make the Democrats look like they're tough on China going into the midterms? Does it really matter to Democrat partisans? Would it really flip any Republicans? I don't know. So I think there are a lot of basic questions about why this trip, why at this time do we really believe the details that have been leaked? It all strikes me as very strange. Uh, but the one point that is worth making is that the fact that China now would indicate that they're going to threaten to blow up a plane carrying a Speaker of the House, that there have been massive military and naval movements in the region and potentially the makings of the beginning of a blockade here speaks to the failure of the bipartisan establishment, which has led to a situation where China believes it could act with such total impunity and threaten the existence of Taiwan. Yeah, I, I, I really hope you're right, Ben, and I hope this is like strategic ambiguity even within the U.S. government, um, or and this is some kind of actual communicated, coordinated dance here, uh, rather than the incompetence that's increasingly all we can expect, uh, not just from this administration, but from American government um, and foreign policy more broadly. Um, so I hope that that's the case. I, I don't really have a problem with Pelosi doing this. Um, I. I guess my, my problem is that we aren't doing all the serious things that we need to do to prepare for, you know, a, a much more hostile relationship with China, right? Um, we just talked uh, in, in a previous segment, right, about how we are now sending more, you know, uh, production, more manufacturing of solar panels to China with this very bill that we are now discussing, right? Um, it, that is not the action of a country that's serious about you know, making sure that we are on a road where if we are in a, a um, let's say, even short of like an actual war with China, but just in a cold war with China, where we, we are in an economic war with China, we are not proceeding in, the, in a serious way towards being able to sustain ourselves and be victorious in that kind of 
of conflict, economic conflict. You know, semiconductors might be a cash cow for the Pelosi family. I don't know. Um, but they're also critical for U.S. economic and military security. And 90 something percent of the production is in Taiwan. Um, that's a major problem for the United States. And, and increasingly, you know, it's not just semiconductors and not just Taiwan. I mean, we, we, are, we are heavily, heavily reliant and intertwined um, in a way that we never were with the USSR uh, on, uh, with our chief geopolitical opponent at minimum and our Cold War enemy um, at maximum. So I, I just, I, 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 I don't have any problem with this move. I just wish it were backed up with, with things that were are more serious and putting us on a more serious um, footing towards this country that is is probably going to be our primary foe for the next ten years minimum. Yeah, I don't I don't have much to add. I would just say I kind of wish that this hadn't leaked and become such a ridiculous controversy uh, because it it actually would have been sort of awesome uh, if Nancy Pelosi just straight up landed there. Um, and you know, it looked like one voice in the United States, not to sound almost Chinese, ironically, uh, but it looked like our policy was more consistent and um, more, more consistent and more full-throated and more serious uh, instead of this haphazard. I mean, that's the entire thing that, that our enemies are using against us, whether they're Russia or China. They are saying that we are weak because we are divided and this, emphasized that. So while I think it's actually great, and I wish it were a less China-connected politician than Nancy Pelosi, um, but uh, so I think it's great that she eventually did touch down. It's a big deal that we didn't back out of this. Um, you know, I, I really should have been handled with much more competence. Um, and it, it just goes a long way towards proving the point that we're too divided basically to function efficiently as a country. Um, it's hard to argue that when you see things like this happening, and it gives five to our enemies to make that point. So I'll kick it back to the group. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and transition then to final thoughts. Anyone want to get us started here? I'll, I'll jump at it just to pick up uh, on the, the last segment. Uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at this, when you step back and look at what transpired with Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi essentially made the Biden administration look weak and pointed further to the fact inadvertently about how compromised it is with respect to communist China. Uh, was that by design or was it a, a matter of incompetence or something else? I don't know. Uh, and then also, of course, you know, Paul Pelosi, I think as we're recording this, maybe today even had a court date associated with his DUI. So is this further a deviation from that story? I mean, you never know with Washington, D.C. politicians. Um, and lastly, I'll say Bridge Colby had an excellent thread, as he often does on Twitter, on the whole Taiwan matter from the, a very nationalist and realist perspective. Uh, so I'd urge people to check that out as well. His thoughts are, his insights are always important on this. Um, transitioning briefly just to my segment on kind of the rot and corruption of the FBI and DOJ. One of the reasons that I focus so intently on these particular agencies is because the national security apparatus is what launched and was really behind uh, the most substantial wars against the Trump administration. And I think that's precisely because A, the security state itself is the strongest, most powerful, and most feared part of the administrative state. It's the leading edge of it. And when Chuck Schumer says they can get you six ways from Sunday, the intelligence community, he means it. It's disturbing, by the way, that a U.S. senator would say that. The fact that a U.S. senator would say that so flippantly, I think, is disastrous. That should have disturbed every American. Uh, so, 
the reason I focus on these agencies is they're the leading edge of the rot and corruption of the administrative state. They're the most powerful part of it. And you'll note, again, the attacks against Trump, namely, came from the deep state within the administrative state. And that's precisely because they are the most powerful, the strongest, and they ha might have the most to lose to the extent you did have a president who might clean house. So, you know, with respect to the next Congress, you know, we talked about, and Angelo Cotovilla, the late Cotovilla, talked about, you know, abolishing these agencies. I don't necessarily know what the right remedy is. Obviously, personnel is policy. Members of Congress, I want much more than strongly worded letters and oversight hearings. You have the power of the purse and you have the ability to craft legislation, which granted the president himself would probably veto, which would be revelatory itself. But you have to find a way to clean house within these agencies that have become the security staff, the Praetorian Guard for our ruling class. That cannot be our intelligence agencies, our senior most law enforcement figures. We don't have anything, we're not even a banana republic essentially, if this is what it is ultimately. We're something lower than that. And that is a huge disaster that does impact the lives of every single American, whether they see it or not in their daily lives. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with Ben more. And I'll just pick up on that thread. Um, I'm, I guess, kind of jaded on the abolish agencies train uh, simply because the Republican Party has exactly zero track record, even though they have been against uh, the existence of certain agencies for decades. I mean, even Reagan couldn't abolish the Department of Education. It was created a year before he came into office and he still couldn't kill it in eight years. Um, we don't have a great track record of doing that. Look, I'm all for it. Um, but I, I think actually the more serious minded way for Republicans to go about this, if they were interested in doing it, is to really take control of these agencies. And, and that's like what Ben said, that's that's oversight, a combination of oversight. And I think very, very critically, the ability to hire and fire in particular. And I also agree that um, this is the most important when you have um, agencies that are wielding enormous law enforcement and surveillance powers over the American people. It's obviously more important. Um, I don't think this issue is more important than education broadly written, but it's certainly more important than abolishing the Department of Education, which is mostly a hundred, you know, uh, six figure, uh, six for figure salary bureaucrats who are doing a lot of damage, but ultimately don't wield this kind of power over the American people. Um, just my final thought that I wanted to throw into the mix, there, there's a really interesting lawsuit that the NCLA is, is picking up. This is Philip Hamburger's outfit that is dedicated to doing some of that oversight over executive agencies and administrative agencies. Um, this one in particular, though, he's joining in. Uh, the NCLA is joining with Louisiana and Missouri. Now they have a new AG, Eric Schmidt, right? Uh, one of the Eric's endorsed by Trump. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have a really interesting theory, which is that they're taking direct aim at um, the COVID censorship in social media companies. Um, and they're saying that it's actually ultimately a state action that is governable by the First Amendment because there was so much communication with this, the CDC, DHS, as well as public statements from government officials telling um, social media companies to censor COVID information that contradicted with the government narrative. They are going in on this lawsuit saying that that, is, that does count as a state action and therefore is, is an infringement on the First Amendment. I, I would keep an eye on this lawsuit. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of an interesting legal theory. It's a novel legal theory. It hasn't been played around with very much, because, but I think it's going to become critical now that we see that the kind of the shape of our regime to, to return once again to Ben's point 
is oftentimes this very sinister public-private communication. Um, and so I think this lawsuit will be really important going forward uh, in terms of how it turns out. Not that it will solve the entire problem of woke capital, uh, because I think a lot of that is cultural collusion, right? It, it may not be that the government agency is actually emailing the head of Twitter saying censor this, but that everybody who works at Twitter and that government agency is, is part of the same professional managerial class that went to all the same schools and holds all the same you know opinions politically. So that kind of cultural collusion is going to be much harder to deal with. Uh, but I still think this lawsuit is, is uh, something very interesting and worth keeping an eye on. I think Josh alluded to this earlier, but um... It, there's an important, and Inez said something about it as well in a different subject, but when we were talking in, in Ben's segment about the uh, FBI, the DOJ, and when we were talking in Inez's segment about education, there is a way to explain to uh, people who, who have the good fortune of not spending their jobs caring and, and reading every single new update um, on the news, how this these problems relate directly to them and there is one person who does it really well and it's tucker carlson he makes the problem real uh he explains why the problem is very real to individuals on a completely nonpartisan, bipartisan transpartisan basis um, by sharing stories that have affected people on the the granular everyday level and you know these problems are really serious the problems that the doj has been talks about eloquently um are very very serious and the problems in the education bureaucracy uh is people sort of started to wake up to that on a totally nonpartisan basis in virginia where i am right now or anywhere else um, around the country san francisco um you know people on, on a not just your average Republican voter is starting to see this in their lives. And so Republicans need to augment that with good messaging. And the conservative movement needs to augment that with palatable messaging um, that doesn't back down. It doesn't, you know, we'll see what Glenn Youngkin does, but you know, it doesn't shy away from any of it that still understands the culture war is the big tent realizes, for instance, that what happened in Kansas, where you see, saw this shift in language from the pro-abortion side to talking about abortion as a matter of freedom um, instead of women's rights and feminism, but talking about it in terms of freedom are very real. Um, not trying to wave it away and saying, you know, this is just, Dems are radical. They are radical, um, but our country, our country has been conditioned to go in a very certain direction when it comes to culture issues. And so I, I think, you know, you just, it has to be explained wisely and the messaging has to be smart. Um, and Ben Dominich's point about what we're seeing from some of these candidates, whether they're just reverting by default to pre-2016 uh, Republican Party in the absence of, you know, people telling them here's a better way to talk about it um, and, and having a really clear sense, you know, going into a potential Republican administration in 2024, having a clear plan, having a clear sense of what reform would look like, what messaging would look like. I know there are great people working on that in the conservative movement right now, um, but, you know, just it's time to be, I think, clear, have, have the moral clarity that is necessary. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll toss it back to Josh. Yeah, so I'm going to actually transition to what I want to talk about quite perfectly, actually, which is this Kansas abortion referendum. So Kansas is a very interesting state, politically speaking. I don't pretend to have a full grasp on it. I've only been to Kansas a couple of times myself. But 
it is culturally speaking, at least outside of Johnson County, which is like the major Kansas City suburb, culturally outside of Johnson County, at least, it is a very red state. Um, very, very much so, certainly kind of central and western Kansas. And, you know, Republicans do tend to win statewide elections there. They have both current U.S. senators. But at the same time, you know, Kansans saw fit to elect uh, Kathleen Sebelius before she was an Obama administration official. She was a, a very pro-abortion governor of Kansas. Um, you know, Chris Kobach lost there statewide in 2018. They elected a Democrat as recently statewide as four years ago. Uh, you know, George George Tiller, the infamous late term abortionist, was based out of Kansas. So there's a weird thing going on um, in, in Kansas. I don't pretend to fully have my finger on the pulse of. But another weird thing, as recently as a few years ago, the Kansas Supreme Court and what can only be described as just an indescribable act of hubris, you know, purported to divine a natural right to abortion in the Kansas State Constitution when there was not even anything close to it. I mean, anyone who's you know vaguely familiar with you know natural rights theory would say that there's a natural right to life. That's kind of what Jefferson was getting at in that whole declaration thing. So uh, on Tuesday night in Kansas, they had a ballot referendum where they had the opportunity to effectively kind of remove this just grotesque act of judicial usurpation and, and simply return the question to the people of Kansas now that the Dobbs case has permitted the states to do what they want when it comes to abortion policy. And by a huge margin, like an 18-point margin, that failed. So, so put another way, Kansas, by like an 18-point margin, um, said that they wanted to keep abortion as a state Supreme Court protected natural right. And I have to think that part of this, I'm not saying this is all of it, that would be a bit of a coping mechanism, but certainly part of it is just the horrific way that the lawyers who drafted this referendum drafted this. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. So the ballot referendum that Kansas were asked to vote on is, uh, quote, regulation of abortion. Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people through their elected state representatives and state senators may pass laws regarding abortion, including but not limited to laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. I mean, like, what the actual, you know what, guys? I mean, like, you know, if you were like, if, if this was drafted in a first year LRW, legal research and writing seminar at a law school, you would get an F for that. I mean, literally all it had to say was there is no state constitutional right to abortion. You know, the people should decide on it how they so choose. That's it. That's literally all it had to say. So this is like overly lawyered language of like the very worst, right? Um, and, and it just kind of gets to Emily's point that messaging is really, in so many instances, really is just half the battle here. And, um, you know, this is going to be a tough pill to swallow for the pro-life movement. It's a huge setback in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. But, you know, I, I, I hope that we kind of talk about them and learn the right lessons and move on from there. But for this particular episode, we are out of time at this point. So on behalf of Emily, Inez, and Ben, I am Josh Hammer, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.